I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi everyone, it's me, Anne Foster. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to let you know about a fundraiser that I'm doing. Inspired by the life and philanthropy of Harem Sultan, I've put a new t-shirt design at vulgarhistory.store, and all proceeds from this design through to the end of May will be donated to World Central Kitchen. It's a blue shirt that says Hasaki, which is the title given to Harem as Suleiman's favorite. I decided to do this because of Harem's ties to the country of Ukraine, which is currently facing crisis due to attacks from the Russian forces. As you'll hear about in this week's episode, Harem herself was very committed to giving to charity, especially for people in need. She funded hospitals, schools, soup kitchens, and fountains of clean drinking water in numerous cities. I chose World Central Kitchen as the recipient of money raised from this fundraiser because their work, providing fresh, nutritious meals to people in areas of crisis, feels similar to the work that Harem herself supported, and they are currently helping out in Ukraine and nearby areas. So, from now until the end of May... When you buy one of the Hasaki teas from vulgarhistory.store, the proceeds will all go to World Central Kitchen. And if you want to support World Central Kitchen without buying a t-shirt, visit wck.org. Hello and welcome to vulgar history a feminist women's history comedy podcast my name is ann foster and this is the second part of a special two-part episode about harem sultan if you haven't listened to the first part yet i recommend listening to that first just to like learn the first half of this story but if you don't feel like doing that you know follow your bliss just listen to this first and after that you might want to listen to part one you do you I want to, this week, shout out the Islamic History Podcast, which is a podcast that's been around for a few years. It's had uh, seven seasons so far, and they have a number of episodes that discuss the Ottoman Empire from an Islamic point of view, and they're really helpful to further understand the context of what Harem and Suleiman's life was like. Um, Yeah, it's a really informative podcast, and so how they describe themselves is it's a podcast that seeks to explore the many stories that make up the current world of Islam. They describe the podcast as they do more than rehash old tales. They explore hidden side alleys most would rather not see. We not only want to know what happened, we want to know why it happened. So just a podcast recommendation. It's called The Islamic History Podcast. And diving right back in, I guess. So last time we ended things on a cliffhanger where Suleiman freed Harem from slavery after they'd had, you know, five children together and been monogamous for 15 years or something. And 
He did that so that he could marry her. And what happens next? You are about to find out. So, note, this wasn't like they had to wait for Hafsa to die because she wouldn't give permission to get married. And I believe on Magnificent Century, the shock, like they get secret sexy married and then tell her and the shock of that kills her or something like that. In real life, the thing is like, out of respect for her, Suleiman would never marry her while she's still alive because that marriage would have dishonored her, the queen mother, by diminishing her status as the ranking female of the dynasty. Like, they didn't want, because Harem would, defend, would become more powerful. So they waited until she died to do this, but out of respect, not because she was, like, stopping them, probably. And our best friends, the Venetian ambassadors, messy bitches who loved spreading rumors. So 15 years after this marriage, one of them wrote a letter to the Habsburg emperor claiming that Harem had refused to have sex with Suleiman unless he married her, aka the Anne Boleyn maneuver, which is possible, but that's also leaning into the whole like Harem is this like person who uses sex to manipulate Suleiman, where it's like at this point, sex can only manipulate someone so much. Really, one would think. I think this is more just like they were a pair, they were a full partnership, and to like, well, they wanted to make the partnership official which couldn't happen until she was freed from slavery and they were officially married. So, and also, another reason why they likely got married when they did so quickly. So Hafsa died and Suleiman was about to go out of town on another military campaign and he needed, in the absence of his mother, someone to be his eyes and ears in Istanbul, someone who he could trust completely. And Harem couldn't do that if she was living in the old palace, in the harem, by marrying her she was able to, well, by marrying him, she was able to set up a second living space in the new palace, allowing her to be closer to the pulse of politics, as with her son Mehmed, who was just turning 13. And this was another significant break from established customs. Prior to this, if you remember, Mehmed the Conqueror, Suleiman's great-grandfather, who made a lot of rules, so he kind of changed things in his way, and then Suleiman just kind of changed things differently. Um, Mehmed the Conqueror had made a decree in which no women would be allowed to reside in the same building where government affairs were conducted. And Suleiman was like, until now. So Harem was given a suite of rooms adjacent to Suleiman's. Attendants and servants accompanied her from the old palace. And this led the way to one of Harem's greatest legacies, the transformation of the royal Harem into a political force. In fact, so after she had died, like by the end of the century... This had turned into a regularized institution in the Ottoman government, consisting of the upper echelon of royal women living and working from the political heart of the empire, the new palace. Simultaneously, the old palace retained its role as a training institution for like new, the newly enslaved and a home for retired harem women. And this setup, which started under harem, remained throughout the rest of the Ottoman Empire history. So... She took on a role that looks an awful lot like that of queen slash co-monarch. Like queen in the sense of woman with power, not just wife of king. She was Hasaki. She was the mother of three princes. So for the past 13 years that she'd had these children, she'd already been politically important. Um, and she might have even had her own spy network. But now she inherited the whole infrastructure from Hafsa, took it and ran with it. So upon her marriage, she acquired the title Hasaki Sultan. So the addition, when you put Sultan after a woman's name or title, it indicates her membership in the dynastic family. So she was not just Hasaki, she was Hasaki Sultan. And that's how a lot of people referred to her, because again, they didn't deserve to know her name. So this title reflected her great power and status, higher than that of the Ottoman princesses, making her the equal of empresses consort in Europe. So, they got married, and then Suleiman was away for almost two years. The marriage was a very much just kind of like paperwork signing situation. It wasn't like a wedding. It was kind of like, he's going away, let's just like get this done so she could move into the new palace. And then she did. But once he was back in town, they had a giant mega wedding celebration. So, 1536. There was a magnificent formal ceremony for these newlyweds who were, bear in mind parents of five surviving children and had been in a monogamous relationship for 15 years. A chronicler in Istanbul wrote at the time, this week there has occurred in the city a most extraordinary event, one absolutely unprecedented in the history of the sultans. Suleiman has taken to himself as his empress a slave woman from Russia. There is great talk about the marriage and none can say what it means. 
Houses were festooned with garlands, streets illuminated with candles, and there were tournaments, feasts, and processions held. Giraffes were on the scene. It was a big deal. But again, everyone was just like, what is happening? Everyone's still confused. Like, keep up. Come on. Prior to the marriage, Harem had not been a public person because she was a concubine and enslaved, and that's how that life was. But once she was freed and then married... As Hasaki Sultan, she was now kept from the public for a different reason, which was because she was so important. So she began to practice what's called an imperial seclusion. She was not a prisoner, but she was such a special and important person. She was kept away kind of from everyone in a way that reminds me of kind of like Beyonce or even like Taylor Swift, where someone is so rich and so powerful that they can choose to just not let you see them or know what they're up to. And in this culture, the culture Harem lived in, a woman of virtue was recognized by her seclusion. So like the more secluded you were, like the more important you were. So, and the wealthier you were, the more opulent your seclusion could be. So again, she's in these like magnificent palaces, like these huge, like Mall of America sized complexes. And it's not like, when I say secluded, like she was surrounded by other important people. It's just less important people weren't allowed to see her because why would they? Unlike other times when Suleiman was out of town, like before they were married, she was just kind of left in the old palace and she like did what she could from there, but now she's in the new palace. So when he was out of town, she's able to like get shit done. She was, in fact, or she became the first woman in Ottoman history to concern herself with state affairs. She acted as Suleiman's chief advisor on matters of state and seems to have had an influence upon foreign policy and international politics. She frequently accompanied him as a political advisor. She imprinted her seal, I guess, on documents, and she watched council meetings through a wire mesh window. Wasn't that... That was Agrippina, right? In ancient Roman times, like, women couldn't go to these meetings but so Agrippina like hid behind a curtain or something so Haram was this is where I mean she was so capable of taking on this political role like Suleiman kind of lucked out that he found her right away because she's so exactly the person that he wanted to have there with him because she was so smart and intelligent and bearing in mind this is like not her first language and she had been like traumatized through the whole slavery as a 12 year old like she was so well suited to this role and it's fortunate that she was able to take on this role her influence on Suleiman was so significant the rumors circulated that the sultan had been bewitched yes again so it's just like what this woman is like the sultan is letting her like be involved in stuff like it can't just be that he like sees she's smart and respects her opinion it has to be that she's a sexy witch um but then, because she wasn't allowed to meet with people, other than the people who she was surrounded by, because of the whole like seclusion scenario, she invented a new way to be a diplomat, which was basically pen pals. So the Ottoman Empire had made use of female diplomats before, but these had been the mothers or aunts of sultans, never the wife, because there hadn't been a wife before. So she couldn't go in person to do like, you know, a little trip to Poland or whatever, so she started writing letters to help her husband build alliances and keep peace. One of her pen pals was the king of Poland, marking the only, the first and only time in the Ottoman Empire that a woman from the dynastic family exchanged letters with a foreign king. After that, although some of Harem's successors exchanged letters with queens, there is no other example of a woman who personally contacted a king after this. So her influence with Suleiman made her one of the most powerful women in Ottoman history and in the world at the time, because the Ottoman Empire was like super powerful in the world. And again, he was like always off on business trips. And so like his mother had done before, Harem wrote frequently to Suleiman to keep him up to date on what was going on because she was his eyes and ears and she was really good at doing that. And it's from some of these letters, which are still around today, that we get some sense of what she was like as a person. And it's interesting to see because people who've looked at these letters describe how the first letters kind of show she's writing in like cautious Turkish, like she's still learning that written language. But as the years go by, she becomes clearly fluent. Her writing style is lively and affectionate, showing why she was given the name meaning joyful. Even as she reached the pinnacle of political power, she never lost her sense of playfulness. Having looked at translations of one of her letters, I would say 
I would agree with this assessment that her writing, not unlike that of Britney Spears' Instagram post captions, has been described as cryptic and hard to follow. So she wrote often about the health of their youngest son, Chihangir, who had ongoing health issues for being treated by the doctors, and so she knew Suleiman would want to know about that. She also wrote affectionately to him. Here is, I'm going to read, an excerpt from one of Harem's letters to Suleiman, which is just like, anyone who's ever missed somebody will get this. But also you see this sort of like Britney Spears Instagram post, sort of chaotic style in which she wrote. She wrote, quote, If you ask about me, your servant who has caught fire from the zeal of missing you, I am like the one whose liver, which to them means heart, has been broiled, whose chest has been ruined, whose eyes are filled with tears, who cannot distinguish any more between night and day, who has fallen into the sea of yearning, desperate, mad with your love. This passionate love of yours, your slave, is burning because I have been separated from you. Like a nightingale whose sighs and cries for help do not cease, I am in such a state due to being away from you. I would pray to Allah to not afflict this pain even upon your enemies. My dearest Sultan, as it has been one and a half months since I last heard from you, Allah knows that I have been crying night and day waiting for you to come back home. While I was crying without knowing what to do, the one and only Allah allowed me to receive good news from you. Once I heard the news, Allah knows. I came to life once more since I had died while waiting for you. My dearest Sultan, I'm begging Allah for you to send me your blessed letters. Believe me when I say this, if I cannot hear a word from you more than two weeks, the world collapses. There will be rumors about your well-being around the city. Please do not think that I want to hear from you just for my own sake. In case you're worried Suleiman didn't feel as passionately in return, don't worry, because he wrote poems for her like this one. Quote, Throne of my lonely niche, my wealth, my love, my moonlight, my most sincere friend, my confidant, my very existence, my sultan, my one and only love, the most beautiful among the beautiful, my springtime, my merry face love, my daytime, my sweetheart, laughing leaf, my plants, my sweet, my rose, the only one who does not distress me in this world, my Istanbul, my Karaman, my, the earth of my Anatolia, my Badakhshan, my Baghdad and Khorasan, my woman of the beautiful hair, my love of the slanted brow, my love of eyes full of mischief, I'll sing your praises always. I, lover of the tormented heart, Muhibi of the eyes full of tears, I am happy. I mean, if I say that I ship it, like what's one level above that this is like pedro e inez level just like shipping it this is like Kourtney kardashian travis barker just like two people who are so in love and just like can't stop being happy about it so however the relationship began eg with her enslaved and him as the sultan she was freed they had been married and they were basically equals he was the most powerful man in the ottoman empire she was the most powerful woman they were parents of five and obviously still madly in love with each other years after they had gotten together which again can't emphasize this enough was so confusing to literally everybody our pal the venetian ambassador wrote suleiman's love was the reason that the janissaries and the entire court hate harem and her children likewise but because the sultan loves her no one dares to speak and certainly um, the Janissaries, especially the ones who had been spending time in Manisa with Mahidavran and Mustafa, sided with them against Harem because Mahidavran's main goal was still for Mustafa to become the new sultan. So they would be downplaying Harem and her children to make them seem less suitable to inherit. But Harem had no time for the haters. And shortly after Suleiman's return from yet another military campaign, um, she began build, planning for her first philanthropic building project. This was like just after their wedding. So, as the wife of the Sultan, Harem recognized that she should give back proportionately to her own wealth and power. And the Islamic religion has charitable giving as a core tenet and obligation, as does Christianity and Judaism. And these are the three religions practiced across the Ottoman Empire. Also, sort of cannily, giving back to charity was also a way for the subjects to feel closer and more appreciative towards her, especially given her unconventional role and background and how people thought she was an evil, sexy witch, etc. If anything would win the hearts of the Ottoman subjects in a lasting way, it was a building that offered benefits to ordinary people. And also, this is a culture that disapproved of physical representation of the sovereign on statues, portraits, or on coins. Yes, you will notice there's been no coin minting moments here. 
So monumental architecture was the most obvious demonstration of wealth and influence. What is called a foundation, which at first I thought meant like uh, a charitable foundation, but this basically means a group of buildings that she commissioned to be built. So a foundation, it's like laying the foundation for buildings. So her first foundation included a mosque, two religious schools, a public water fountain, and a women's hospital. And the location and timing of this architectural debut mark her maverick status in the culture she's living in. So usually philanthropic giving was a privilege of mature political motherhood. Like somebody would do this when they were the mother of the sultan, not the wife, because again, there had not been a wife, but she was just like 34 years old, life just getting started. Her foundation was the first in Istanbul donated by and called after a woman. It was called the Hasaki after her, the way that was the name that the people knew her by. It was the first foundation constructed in the builder's own name by a member of the current royal generation. Like people built stuff to honor their ancestors, but not themselves until now. And so while she obviously would have gotten advice from other people about where to build her buildings, especially because she had like never left the palace, the final decision seems like it's got her name all over it. Like of the options she was given, she chose to build this foundation in a neighborhood associated with females. So it was in an area that held a weekly women's market where women sold their works and wares. Ottoman culture meant that um, women's, this is phrased as like women's relationship with communal spaces remained limited. Like women couldn't just go anywhere. So like this women's market was a place where women, entrepreneurs could sell their stuff to other women. So this is a place called Avrat Pazar. The women's market was an important urban area for women. And so she built this structure that was of great benefit to the women of this neighborhood. So they could pray in the mosque, they could line up for the water fountain, they could get um, food from the soup kitchen. Uh, the area in which it was located in modern-day Istanbul is still officially known as Hasaki. I think the foundation itself is still there too. There are, again, if you look up Istanbul tourism, there are so many buildings from this era still around. It's just all kinds of beautiful mosques and buildings. And Harem funded this um, herself because she was now free and had her own money. Culturally, as a person with a lot of money, like a wealthy person, this put a lot of pressure, well, not pressure, but it just meant her obligation to give was greater because it's like the richer you are, the more money you should give back. That was kind of how, that's just kind of the Islamic thing. So there was a profound obligation to give, especially in her society of this day. And so the richer she was, the more she was able to give and the more people probably expected her to. And if you're just like, wow, what a cool woman, she did charity, but uh, like now we're getting it into murder. So murder corner part one. So one of Suleiman's best bros was a guy named Ibrahim Pasha. Ibrahim had been born a Christian in Venice and then was enslaved during his youth. And then he and Suleiman became close friends. When Suleiman became Sultan, he appointed Ibrahim as Grand Vizier, which is like his top advisor. Following the death of Hafsa, the two most important people in Suleiman's life were Horem and his best friend Ibrahim. And so kind of reasonably, and we've seen this in so many other stories, these two are likely rivals for which one of them would he listen to, especially if they didn't agree on the advice they were giving. So the thing with Ibrahim is he was very successful in his role and allegedly as his power grew, so did his arrogance. And maybe because he didn't like Harem, he supported Mustafa as Suleiman's heir rather than the sons of Harem. So at just during the same time that Suleiman returned to Istanbul and there was the big wedding festival, he ordered the execution of Ibrahim. And Ibrahim was garroted with a bowstring while he lay in bed in his private room. So clearly, like putting on my CSI hat, this is a man who did not expect this was going to happen. And especially because apparently that same night, he'd just broken the Ramadan fast with Suleiman earlier that night. So he didn't know this was going to happen. He was executed. The manner of execution was what was usually how royals were executed, but also like Suleiman, we know, ordered the execution. On Magnificent Century, the TV show, for dramatic purposes, obviously, Harem manipulates Suleiman into ordering the death of Ibrahim because she wanted to get him out of the way as a threat to her and her sons. This was put in the show because it was a widespread gossipy rumor since basically the time this murder happened, and maybe is true. I do not know. Again, it's just kind of like, how much did Harem just like manipulate Suleiman like a puppet, and how much did she just explain things to him, and then he made his own choices? Whether she convinced Suleiman 
to kill Ibrahim or not. The death of Ibrahim was a good thing for Harem because that was one less person for her to worry about getting close to Suleiman, made her have more power because his attention wasn't being spread, um, and one less supporter of Mustafa for her to worry about. And so there's no contemporary evidence she had anything to do with this, but like, of course there's not. Like, why would there be? Like, her personal diary, like, ha, here's what I did. Like, if she was involved, why would she leave clues? So then there were three other grand viziers in eight years, I guess. He was, like, trying out different people for the job. And eventually Suleiman selected uh, Rustem Pasha, who is his son-in-law, the husband of their daughter Mirama, to become the new grand vizier. And this was yet another break from protocol. Like, Suleiman did nothing other than break from protocol, apparently. Prior to this, there had been a tradition forbidding relatives of the sultan to hold important political positions. But now his son-in-law was the new vizier. Coincidentally... Rustem obviously supported Harem's children as the next sultan. So when their oldest sons, Mehmed and Selim, came of age, both left Istanbul to start up their own households. And this was one of the things that had been confusing people all along, because usually it's like there's one son per woman, and the woman accompanied that son when he went off to start his own household. But they're like, but she has more than one son, so which one is she going to choose? So she chose neither of them. Um, this was another major change, making her the only mother of princess who remained in Istanbul for her whole life rather than leaving with her sons. Who knows? She had her reasons, but one of them might have been the Chihangir. The youngest son, who was disabled, might have needed her more than his older brothers did at this point. And then, 1543, their oldest son, Mehmed, contracted smallpox and died in Manisa, aged 21. His body was returned to Istanbul for funeral celebrations and Suleiman's grief was legendary like literally he wept for more than two hours at his son's burial refusing to let the body be interred then he attended prayers for 40 days instead of the customary three he dressed in black to reflect his grief for all these 40 days which meant everyone else had to dress in black too we don't know how Huram behaved because nobody wrote about her but one can assume similarly Mehmed had been seemingly their favorite son he was also their oldest son and also as the eldest so that was harem's first child she had him when she was 17 and his birth changed her life entirely because it elevated her rank and he was the start of this nuclear family that she had assembled in place of whatever family she'd had to leave behind in kiev and rus harem and her daughter mirama were not present at the funeral prayers because women didn't participate in public funerals which is part of why we don't know what their reactions were like um, Suleiman hired the famed imperial architect Mimar Sinan, who was the same one who had designed Harem's first foundation, to build the Shehzadeh Mosque in Istanbul to commemorate Mehmet. Shehzadeh, again, being the title referring to being son of the Sultan. Suleiman, who, remember, was a poet, composed an elegy for Mehmed, and the poem ends with the line, Most distinguished of the princess, my Sultan, Mehmed. And the death of his oldest son changed Suleiman's behavior. Like, usually he had been going on constant military campaigns, but after Mehmed died, Suleiman stayed in Istanbul for the next four and a half years. So this is the longest period of time he and Harem had been together, ever. And this also meant he got to spend more time with their youngest son, Chihangir, who is clever and talkative. Um, Suleiman brought him with him everywhere, like, take your son to work day sort of thing. Like, Chihangir just sounds like a real charmer. Jahangir also spent time with Harem, acting as her travel companion when she went on solo journeys to visit the older brothers off where they were living. And now, after that nice family moment, Murder Corner Part 2. This is the second murder, which later historians suggest Harem was complicit or responsible for, and this is the death of Mustafa, the son of Mahida Ran. So, 1553. Suleiman has been in power for 34 years. And his son, Mustafa, age 38, has been governor in Manisa for 20 years. Mahita Ran's still there with him, doing amazing, clearly, because there's so much support for Mustafa. One part I haven't mentioned yet is that Ottoman sultans were often paranoid that their grown sons might rebel against them. And for this reason, they would sometimes manipulate their sons to become drunks and playboys too busy fucking around to be a threat. Not so with Mustafa, who was well-respected and, again, 38 years old, like an adult. And he'd been in the same place for so long, so he'd really developed a lot of good relationships with the people in Manisa, as had his mother. Um, and the people around him were encouraging him to overthrow his father to become the new sultan. So rumors slash information reaches Suleiman that Mustafa, Mustafa has been scheming against him. Apparently Mustafa 
is even referring to himself as Sultan. And so Suleiman, what can he do? Um, he orders the execution of Mustafa, although we don't know if Mustafa actually was scheming against him or not. But we do know, so as per the article that I use for reference from dailysaba.com, quote, although he was courageous, Mustafa, he lacked two qualities that were more important, patience and cautiousness. So what does Harem have to do with this? Well, the thing is, like, did Harem frame Mustafa to make him look like he was doing this secret scheming? So the theory goes, like, Harem maybe conspired against Mustafa to frame him for treason with the help of her daughter Mirama and Mirama's husband, Rustam Pasha, the vizier. So they wanted to portray Mustafa as a traitor who secretly contacted the Shah of Iran. So allegedly, acting on the orders of Harem. Rustam Pasha had engraved Mustafa's seal and sent a letter seemingly written from him to Shah Tamazb I in Iran and then sent the Shah's response to Suleiman. So basically framing Mustafa for treason, but Mustafa didn't actually write the letter. Um, and here's one for your bingo sheets. Uh, gruesome execution. So Mustafa's execution was gruesome, with more than one botched attempt to strangle him. Which, remember, they the way the royal people were killed was like garroted with a bowstring? The executioners only succeeded when he tripped on his robe trying to flee. His corpse was thrown outside Suleiman's tent as proof of the deed. Mustafa's household was then symbolically erased. So Mustafa's son and the son's mother were captured and killed while they were trying to flee. Mahidavran was stripped of her status as mother of the heir apparent. And Harem now had two less threats to her and her husband's power and to one of her sons becoming the new sultan. So there was a female poet who was like writer in residence at Mustafa's court who is called Nisei. And that sounds like an interesting person I'd like to know about, this female poet. She composed an elegy for Mustafa, which in part goes, quote, You allowed the words of a Russian witch into your ears. Deluded by tricks and deceit, you did the bidding of that spiteful hag. You slaughtered that swaying cypress, fruit of life's orchard. What has the merciless monarch of the world done to Sultan Mustafa? And as you can guess from that poem, the killing of Mustafa has been kind of the main point of Harem's notoriety and the principal reason that history has vilified her, assuming it was her influence that convinced Suleiman to kill Mustafa. And again, there's no records from the time being like, ha ha ha, I did it. But like, of course there aren't. So... Although some people from the time did accuse Rustem of being the one to convince Suleiman to do this, and implicitly by accusing him, knowing that he was married to Mirama, knowing that he was aligned with Harem, like that could be like implicitly accusing Harem of being involved. And maybe she was. But also Suleiman was no fool, and that's where all the stuff about him being duped and controlled by Harem falls apart, because he was actually incredibly smart, and always liked to get advice from various people before making up his mind. So whether or not this letter was what did it, the point remains like Mustafa was popular. There were rumors he, rumors he might work with the Janissaries to try and usurp the throne. Whether he was doing it or not, like those rumors were damaging to Suleiman. There are also non-rumors, like things that Mustafa actually had been doing, like building support for himself to ensure that he became the next sultan. So he's clearly taking action, but there's no evidence of a literal planned insurrection. But like, what evidence would there be? So this is like a choose your own adventure. Was Mustafa actually doing this stuff? Did Harem actually frame him to get him executed? And if she did, was that maybe a good thing? Because maybe he was planning insurrection? Like, I don't know. But this is one of the like, Harem is an evil witch main plot lines so then that same year the same year that mustafa was executed their youngest son chihangir died of a sudden illness very sad he was interred together in the tomb of his older brother mehmed a memorial mosque for chihangir was commissioned on a hill overlooking the bosphorus harem had suggested this place because the prince had enjoyed excursions there and he had intended to commission a mosque there himself one day it was Suleiman who took action at this suggestion, and the neighborhood today apparently still retains the name of Chihangir. So the next era in Harem's life was mediating between her two surviving sons, Salim and Bayezid, who were rivals because that's how this all works. Bayezid fell into disfavor because he was apparently disobedient. Bayezid and Salim went into battle against each other, um, but Salim was supported by Suleiman's army because that's who Suleiman was supporting at the time. 
Bayazid fled to the neighboring Safavid Empire, which is kind of around where modern-day Iran is, but bigger. And there the emperor received him lavishly, but Suleiman kept demanding that Bayazid be put to death for betraying him. And eventually Suleiman paid enough money that the, um, the Shah there agreed and allowed Bayazid's execution by agents of Suleiman. This leaves us just to, like, round up. Harem and Suleiman had two surviving children, Mirama, their daughter, and Salim, their son. But while this drama was happening, Harem continued with building philanthropic foundations and writing letters of diplomacy. So, the building she built. She built a mosque complex in Adrianople, which is modern-day Idirne, Turkey, and Ankara. She commissioned a bath called the Harem Sultan Bathhouse to serve the community of worshippers at the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. She also established a public soup kitchen in Mecca, as well as one in Jerusalem called Hasaki Sultan Imaret, which was a public soup kitchen to feed the poor, which was said to feed at least 500 people twice a day. The charter deed to this complex, the one in Jerusalem, hailed Harem as the quintessence of the queens among women, the Zubaida of her time and age, who is unique and to whom there is no second queen in prosperity and good fortune. So just to understand the reference, Zubaida was a princess who had lived about 700 years before Harem. She was particularly remembered for a series of wells, reservoirs, and artificial pools that provided water for Muslim pilgrims along the route from Baghdad to Mecca and Medina. Uh, This route was renamed the Darb Zubaida in her favor. Fun fact, the exploits of her and her husband, Harun al-Rashid, form part of the basis for A Thousand and One Nights, the like famous story. Some of the charter deeds that Harem drew up for her charitable foundation still survive. In them, we see her repeatedly insist that the staff of her foundation be just as dedicated to treating the needy with kindness as they were to dispense relief to them. This special benevolence towards the enslaved and also to women, um, marginalized women, shows that she never forgot her time in slavery and how she came of age in the old palace among other foreign captives. Her philanthropic work far surpassed that of any other Ottoman woman in volume and geographic reach, and also set a model for future females of the dynasty that would trickle down through to non-royal women as well. In the sense of, like, she gave back so much, it inspired kind of all women to want to, to give back as well. Several of the monuments she commissioned still stand today, as do many of the monuments that her work inspired. And then, so Suleiman had been suffering from gout for a while, and his doctors recommended he spend winters in Adrianople for fresh air, and as he was the most important person in the world, he went there because his health was the most important thing. But remember the letter from Harem, who's like, I haven't heard from you in a month and a half, and like, it it is like I am dead. So she did not like it when he left, obviously. Istanbul, um, as per one chronicler, she was, quote, the mistress of the life of this gentleman by whom she was extremely loved. And because she wants him always near her and is doubtful for her own life on account of illness, she rarely or never lets him part from her. So this is because, so Haram was dealing with her own health problems at this point as well. This is like, she's like in her 50s. So Istanbul... Like, that's where she stayed, because that's where the best medical resources were. So she had to stay there. He was sent to Adrianople for air, so they had to be apart in the winter. And she was well taken care of. Like, the reason why she probably couldn't leave with him to Adrianople was she needed the skilled health co-workers who were in the old palace, which were probably the best female healthcare team in the empire. And they could also call upon support from the hospital that she had commissioned as well. And also being around her loved ones, Mirama, her granddaughters and other longtime friends and acquaintances was probably also good for her health and her spirits. And then Harem died April 15th, 1558, in the old palace, aged around 55. The cause of death was a combination of her chronic condition, which we don't know what that was, along with malaria and colic. As you might imagine, Suleiman's grief was extreme. He apparently aged rapidly with her death. Uh, Ambassador to France wrote... Quote, they say the day before she died, he promised her and swore by the soul of his father, Salim, that he would never approach another woman. Funeral prayers were held at the same mosque where the prayers for Mehmed had been performed 15 years earlier. Haram's coffin was carried to the mosque from the old palace on the shoulders of the viziers. And so she was interred in the cemetery enclosed by the walls of the Suleimanieh Mosque, which is a mosque Suleiman had commissioned and which had just been finished one year before she died. She was buried in a domed mausoleum, 
which you can see videos of on YouTube and is beautiful and huge. The mausoleum is decorated in tiles depicting the Garden of Paradise, perhaps an homage to her smiling and joyful nature. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'll put a link right in the show notes to the YouTube from Barry Istanbul Tips. Because she goes into, she looks at this tomb like she goes inside, and then she also looks at the old palace to give you a sense of just the grandeur and the beauty of it all, and how lovely a tribute this was to, to Harem. A visiting envoy from Mecca, Kutbeddin el Meki, wrote, quote, It is said that her name was Harem Sultan. The Sultan loved her to distraction, and his heart was broken with her death. In her honor, Suleiman commissioned another mosque built in her name, along with a school and a hospital near the women's market. Harem and Suleiman had been together for 37 years, and he continued on living eight more years without her. Following her death, Suleiman relied heavily on their daughter Mirama, who moved into the old palace to be, or sorry, who moved into the new palace to be her father's companion. Following in her mother's footsteps, Mirama acted as Suleiman's counselor and sent him news and forwarded letters while he was away. Suleiman died in southern Hungary on a military campaign, age 72, and it's a really good story. So, he died, and the leaders of the campaign didn't let the soldiers know he died because they thought that maybe the soldiers wouldn't want to continue with the campaign if they knew he was dead. So, a guy named Sokolu Mehmed came up with a plan to pretend he was still alive so as not to affect morale. A page was made up to impersonate Suleiman and wave from an imperial carriage, so like, not quite a weekend at Bernie's scenario, but kind of a weekend at Bernie's scenario. This worked. The army was victorious in capturing the fortress they'd been seizing two days after Suleiman's secret death. His heart and organs were buried where he died, but his body was brought back to Istanbul for burial. So he was interred also in the Suleimaniye Mosque in a mausoleum adjacent to that of Harem. Their only surviving son, Selim, became the next sultan. He was, as per every story we've ever done, where a woman is amazing and smart and clever and fights tooth and nail for her son, he was pretty useless, and he was known as Selim the Drunkard. But the real power behind the throne in his era was actually in the hands of his sister, Mirama, who is truly the heir of Harem, psychologically, and Mirama's daughter, Aisha Humasha. And then, so a 150-year period of time, Beginning with Harem moving to the new palace, like starting with that and then 150 years from then on, is considered to be the reign of women, as Harem's heavy involvement in politics and the changes she implemented paved the way for other influential women to follow after her. During this period, women close to the reigning sultan, mothers, wives, daughters, and consorts, exercised exceptional power, often determining domestic policy, negotiating with foreign governments, and acting in the role of regent, as well as leaving architectural monuments to their success. As such, the new palace harem that she created did continue on, but after her death, it was overseen by the queen mother. So no other reigning couple were allowed to come to power after her and Suleiman. Like, there's never another person in her exact role. Again, although other women did take on political power, as I just described. So some of the precedents that harem and Suleiman set that continued on included a more peaceable system of identifying the next sultan rather than the brothers all killing each other. Her diplomatic work helped modernize the empire, where treaty negotiations became as challenging and significant as victory in battle, and domestic will occupied as much of the government's attention as conquest. Bolstered by the reforms Harem and Suleiman introduced, the Ottoman Empire would sustain itself for another 350 years. Their daughter Mirama would become the greatest of Ottoman princess philanthropists following her mother's example. Mirama amassed a huge fortune from her dowry and inheritance, which she used in the construction of buildings and the endowment of charitable foundations. She maintained her influence through many reigns because, like, to no one's surprise, Salim the drunkard did not last super long. When she died in 1575, her nephew, Murad III, had her buried next to Suleiman, an honor not even granted to Harem. Harem Sultan is a subject of many artistic works. Um, the first of these came just three years after her death, when French author Gabriel Bounin wrote a tragedy titled La Sultane, and this was the first time the Ottomans were introduced on stage in France. She has inspired paintings, musical works, operas, a ballet, plays, and several novels, written mainly in Russian and Ukrainian, but also in English, French, German, and Polish. In 1999, the town of Rohatin, Ukraine, erected a bronze statue of her, in 2007, Muslims in Mariupol, Ukraine, opened a mosque to honor Harem. 
And then, of course, she was portrayed in TV miniseries. So first there was a 2003 Turkish miniseries called Harem Sultan. And then she was a primary character in Magnificent Century, which, again, you can find on YouTube and is so good. In 2019, mention of the Russian origin of Harem Sultan was removed from the visitor panel near her tomb at the Suleymaniye Mosque in Istanbul at the request of the Ukrainian embassy in Turkey. The historic areas of Istanbul were named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1985. I feel like so many, the season is like accidentally like the history of women and UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So the areas that are considered part of the historic areas of Istanbul World Heritage Site include the New Palace, the Suleymaniye Mosque Complex, and the Shehzadeh Mosque Complex built from Mehmed. And the Hasaki Sultan Complex, the first foundation she commissioned, is still in Istanbul, as are most of the other buildings she commissioned throughout the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the hospital that was constructed by Harem, Hasaki Hospital, still offers its services to sick people today. And now, time for some scoring. So, well, first of all, the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. Past recipients, Lady Jane Seymour, obviously, Thomas Keyes, Tonga, Pedro, and I'm going to give this to Suleiman because he loved Harem so much. He respected her he saw all that she's capable of and he relied on her like because of their relationship they were able to keep on top of domestic affairs as well as while he was on military campaigns like he trusted her and he loved her so much and i'm gonna give him this award because she was able to achieve everything she did because of his unending support and this is the outstanding supporting performance it's not just like best boyfriend award it's like someone who supports the main character of one of these podcast episodes. And Suleiman supported her in everything she did. Like, even though people were like, ooh, is she an evil witch? Ooh, did she murder these people? He's just like, I don't care. Like, she's great. And I love her. And I love, I love their love. So the Fredigan Memorial Scandaliciousness Scale. I feel like this might be major. Scandaliciousness. There's two angles to this. The first angle is, like with Malincine, the behavior that Harem... Like what she did was scandaliciousness to the people at the time because it was so opposite of what the protocol usually was in the sense of like, she was monogamous with him. They got married like that. Usually that stuff is not considered scandaliciousness, but in this instance it is because that was scandalous to people at the time. But then also the scandaliciousness of like, did she kill these people? Like she was like, how did, did she do a sexy dance to get his attention? Like the whole way that people thought she was an evil witch and stuff. Like, I feel like there's a large, high amount of scandaliciousness. I'm going to give her, I, I hope this isn't controversial, but I'm going to give her an eight for scandaliciousness. I'm not giving her top marks because we don't know if she was involved. Like, and the two murders, like, it's arm's length. It's like, did she convince him to then order the murder of this person that was then done by someone else? Like, she's not like her hands aren't dirty in the scandalousness, which could just be because she was so good at it. She kept herself uninvolved. But that's, I would say, scheminess. And this is where I feel like she's going to get high marks. So first of all, the fact that she like was thrust into the situation in the harem, but again, scheminess being like a quality that I support and value. Like the fact that she saw what was going on in the harem realized like, okay, the fact that she like became fluent in Turkish, the fact that she figured out all this like Downton Abbey level etiquette stuff, but also the fact that she showed her aptitude to the point that she got the extra training, the fact that she somehow, either through her own scheminess or through the scheminess that got her to get somebody, like that got her the attention of someone who would be her patron, like that she was brought to the attention of Suleiman. And then the fact that she then went on to do all this like political government stuff like the fact that she stayed head above water in this situation where everyone was out to get her really like and a lot of that was like yes Suleiman supported her but she was able to stay on top of that and make him not doubt her to make him continue supporting her like I am giving her a 10 I'm giving her a 10 for scheminess because I just feel like in terms of like intelligence cleverness like staying like, it seems like going through the narrative, it's like, well, things were pretty easy for her. Like, Suleiman loved her, and so she got this job, and here we go. But it's like, no. But, like, she worked for, like, once she was in that situation, which, like, first of all, it took scheminess to get there. 
And then it took skeeviness to stay in that position and to do all the stuff she was doing. Like the fact, it's funny to call it skeeviness, but like the way that they were make like modernizing this empire, the way that they were changing protocols. Like it's intelligence, it's resilience, and I think good for her. Significance, I think, is going to be also another high score because just in terms of like how she paved the way for this 150 year period of like other women taking on similar roles, the way that she became a role model to people, inspiring other people to to give back as well, but also the significance of the work that she did, like making these buildings that would help out women in a place where they maybe didn't have access to a school or fresh water or a hospital or a mosque they could go to. Like the ripple effect of that, like how many like literally how many lives did she improve and or save by making these philanthropic foundations like just offering water to people offering people a place for education like the ripple effect of that of like people who went there and like maybe got more education than they would have and then what did those people do and then i feel like her significance is 10 as well and then we get to the sexism bonus and so this is it's tricky The sexism bonus is, I need to wrap my head around this, because she was captured and sold into slavery in a very gendered way, where she was, you know, displayed nude at the slave market for inspection of her hymen and stuff, and then she was sold into, effectively, sexual slavery. I say effectively, because, like, Melanzine was, like, put into sexual slavery, like, right away would have been assaulted. Harem was trained for four years to become a concubine, and it just so happened that she and Suleiman ended up hitting it off. But, like, that doesn't make what happened to her not a horrible sexist thing that happened. And then when she gained more power, people, like, she still faced sexism in the sense of, like, yes, she still had power. That was not taken away from her because Suleiman supported her, and that's why he gets the award. But people were just like, well, how could a woman be smart? How could a woman be significant unless she was an evil sexy witch at the same point the sexism bonus is like how much did the bullshit patriarchy get in the way of her fulfilling her um potential as a powerful person and i don't want to downplay the fact the like slavery of it all but for most of her life like the sexism didn't get in her way because she found a way to play within that system which was a sexist system i'm gonna say controversially i'm gonna give her an eight for sexism so what does this add up to i think it's gonna be a pretty mega score 36 30 goddamn six let me just check our scale here that is 0.5 above malanzine um, so the top, the top scores here, Fredigand has a 38, Queen Margot, 37.5, Harem Sultan, 36, Malinzine, 35.5. And it goes down from there, but that's like a top score. That's in the top five. I, I feel okay about that. I was just considering if I should rescore her on any of the categories. Cause I was like, but part of the way that this scale works is it's just, it's a gut feeling and I am at peace with where she landed because I think she was phenomenal. I think she was great. I think where Fredigand and Queen Margot are slightly above her on the scale, which is not a scale of like who is the best or like who is the coolest, just who is the most scandaliciousness. Fredigand and Queen Margot had more literal scandal that we know about. Like Queen Margot had affairs with people. Fredigand murdered people. Like Harem Sultan, it's like there was rumors that maybe she did, but we don't know for sure that she did. So she's making up a lot of her points on um, significance. She's making her points on scheminess, sexism. Like her scandalousness is high, but it's not. I think this this is a good score. I mean, obviously, they're all good scores. I make the scores. But I think this is a suitable score for her. Because sort of in that Anne Boleyn sort of way, like she's got this bad reputation to some people, apparently for like being like evil and schemey and whatever and like yeah she was schemey but i don't think there's not direct a specific scandaliciousness thing you can point towards that she did other than the fact that like to the people at the time it was scandaliciousness that she was like in a monogamous relationship etc so yeah her Sultan, third highest score on the entire scale 
pretty exciting. The season is like this international season. These scores are real high. Yeah. So that was this family size, sharing size portion of vulgar history. I'm going to go and have the biggest drink of water. Um, but yeah, reminders of a couple of things. So if you go to vulgarhistory.com, in the top corner, there's like a little button. It looks like a little microphone or something. And that's where you can click to send an email to me or to uh, suggest somebody who you think would be good to cover on a future episode of Vulgar History. You can also give me those suggestions through Instagram. My DMs are open. We're at Vulgar History Pod on Instagram. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Vulgar History. And you could email me as well, vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. Because yeah, I love, I love the suggestions coming in. I also love if you give me a suggestion with like a few words and or sentences about why this person is interesting or cool, as people did when they suggested Harem Sultan, and thank God, because like, what a saga. Um, what else? So, vulgarhistory.store, you can go there to pick up your Vulgar History Season 5 merch. And remember, you can always use code TITSOUT for free shipping in the US, or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. And then, if you want to get, there's still more episodes of the show coming. Like, guess what? We're not done Season 5. But if you want to get even more content from me, so if you sponsor me on Patreon, so I've had a couple of messages from people who are new who have not done Patreon before, so I just want to like explain it a bit. So you go to patreon.com slash Writer, and then there are three categories of ways to support me. And because I have Canadian dollars, I'm not quite sure what the exchange rate is where you are looking, because I know you are the international audience. So there are three tiers. The first one is the Borgias. And so that's, when you join in that tier, what you get is early access to all new episodes of Vulgar History. You get them um, like five days early. And then also you get early access to if and when I start writing blog posts again, early access to those. The next tier is the Medicis. So that's where you get the early access as well as the ability to vote in polls to help choose future topics and that sorts of thing. And then the third tier is the Glorianas. So that's that's the tier at which you get access to all the above, like the the polls, the early access to episodes. But it's at the Glorianas level where you get access to the other podcasts that I'm doing. So So This Asshole, once a month I do a podcast about a man who is awful. Most recently, Hernan Cortez, maybe the worst man I've ever read about in my life. Um, you can hear that there. Other people I've talked about are who I did like Henry VIII, I did Charles Dickens, various people like that. And then there's also the Vulgar Peace Theater podcast episodes where I'm joined with Alison Epstein and Wood Johnson to talk about costume dramas. So like once a month, even when I'm not doing Vulgar History episodes, when I'm on hiatus, you can get those that content there. And that's at the Gloriana's level. If you have questions about any of that, you can let me know. And then also when you join Patreon at that level, the Gloriana's level, you get um, an RSS feed, which is like a thing. It's like a URL and you can copy that into where you listen to podcasts. And then that way you can listen to those extra bonus podcasts through your regular podcast listening thing. You don't have to just like go to the website and play them off the website. And I also wanted to remind slash recommend slash plead that it's always great if you rate and review this podcast, wherever you're listening to podcasts on Spotify, there's a thing now where you can like rate it five stars after you listen to an episode. That's super helpful. And then on Apple Podcasts, there's, if you can leave a five-star review and or write a few nice words, that just helps other people, It whatever. It's all to do with like the algorithm, but like the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people hear about the podcast and the more people who hear about the podcast, the more people are listening and the more people are listening, the more support I get. And then I'm able to do more episodes, which I love doing and I hope it brings you joy wherever you are in the world. Keep your mask on, keep your tits out. Talk to you next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.